I am going to invite you to open your Bibles while they attend. I'm very thankful we have a number of medically trained people in our church who are quick. Thank you. We are in the New Testament in the book of 1 Timothy. Aren't you glad that we have a God who's never caught off guard? (laughs) No matter what's going on any given day. Thankful for Pastor Doug and his wife Lisa, their ministry here. Well, it is good to be back. Becky and I have been on vacation the last couple of weeks. I'm very thankful for Dr. Dennis McGarry, who brought the scriptures so well. If you're not familiar with Dennis McGarry, he is the head of the Hebrew and Old Testament department at Trinity Seminary over in Deerfield and is a first-class Hebrew scholar, but he's able to communicate. That's why I like to tap on him and use him. Uh, He is a very gifted preacher. Becky and I were out in South Dakota. Uh, We weren't there for Sturgis, (laughs) but Sturgis was there. So Sturgis was going on, and uh, ZZ Top was there. I think I saw one of them here this morning, up here playing the drums. So they were there. They were top billing for Sturgis this year. Um, We were also in Colorado. We were out to see both sets of our parents, and it was a delight. Um, Able to look at live stream. So grateful for live stream when we're not here. Having said that, there is nothing like being here. And live stream cannot replace that. Been thankful for it. And uh, so, with that, let's turn to the scriptures. They are our only anchor and rock. Sometimes it's good to go back to the basics. And this morning, that is exactly what we're going to do. I don't know where you're at in your spiritual journey, or your spiritual pilgrimage, or where you're at with Christ. But this morning, we're going to go back and we're going to look at a very foundational question, how to find forgiveness with God. This is something good for the saved and the unsaved to do on a regular basis because it's what the gospel is all about. And the Bible's message is very clear. I want you to hear this. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what evil you may have indulged in, the Bible tells us that anyone can find forgiveness from their sins and be reconciled to God if, there's a big if here, if they will fear Him, if they will renounce their wicked ways, and if they will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That brings us to this letter called 1 Timothy or 1 Timothy. It's part of a group of three letters in our New Testament. 1, 2 Timothy and Titus. Uh, About a hundred years ago, for the very first time, these three letters were called the pastoral letters or the pastoral epistles. The reason is because they were written by Paul to two young pastors. Timothy in Ephesus, which is modern-day Turkey, and then Titus in Crete, the island of Crete. And these three letters together talk about what Kelly talked about a little while ago, the church. That the church is a big deal to God and it needs to be a big deal to us. The theme of these three letters is the church and specifically God's protection and power in the church and the purity of the church. And this morning we're going to take up chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, verses 12 down through verse 20. And it is a great section for setting up the Lord's table as Paul is talking about how to find forgiveness. And we see three things. hope you had a chance to pick up an outline this morning. Three things this morning as we come to this section. One, 
there is the problem. Number two, there is the answer. And number three, there is the danger. So there's the problem, the answer, and the danger. Now, as we noted, 1 Timothy is part of what Paul wrote to these young pastors. What's interesting, most people don't know this, is that 1 Timothy is actually one of four letters written to the church at Ephesus. Can you think, if you know your Bibles, can you think of the four letters written to the church at Ephesus in our New Testament? We have Ephesians written to the church at Ephesus. Then we have 1 and 2 Timothy written to the church at Ephesus. And there's one more. Do you know what it is? It is Jesus dictating a letter to the church at Ephesus in the book of what? Revelation. One of seven letters written. And it's in, here's what's interesting as you look at those four letters. They, they, they cover a period of about 30 to 40 years. And the very first one, Ephesians, written in the early 60s, the church seemed pretty vibrant and healthy. And then the second one, which is the one in front of us, written around A.D. 63, it, there's cracks starting to appear in this church. False teaching has infected the church and there's some problems. And that's why Paul talks about the qualifications for leadership. The third one, chronologically, is 2 Timothy, which is Paul's last letter. It's his last will and testament. He is about ready to be martyred and killed for his faith. He is in prison in Rome. And then the last one, the one written or dictated by Jesus, this church is falling apart at the seams. They had lost their passion for Christ. And according to Jesus, they had forsaken their first love. <clears throat> All that within about 30 to 40 years. You have a church that got caught up in doing church, got caught up in false doctrine, got caught up in the busyness of life, and they had allowed their hearts to grow cold towards Christ. You know what? You, you, it's very easy to meet as a congregation. Very easy to come out, bring a Bible, sit down, do religious stuff, go away and be absolutely unaffected by the gospel. In fact... What's interesting in the Bible is that any time someone sits and in a church worship setting, they never remain neutral. You will either walk out of here today more softened to the things of God or more hardened to the things of God. That is the great danger of attending worship services over the years as an unbeliever. You will actually get harder and not softer. That brings us to the problem. The problem is stated in verses 13 to 15. If you would look there, I'm going to read these verses. Here is the problem stated in a nutshell. It is that we are born in rebellion against God. We are born in sin, and we are born in wickedness and cut off from God. And Paul states this very clearly. I'm going to read verses 12 through verse 15 as he describes the problem. I'm reading out of the New International Version, by the way. I thank Jesus Christ, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. Now notice verses 14 and 15 especially. The grace of our Lord was poured out of me abundantly along with life, with, along with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then what's the last phrase say? 
of whom I am the word. The Greek actually says of whom I am first. <laughs> first. I am the first of sinners. That way to translate that probably in English is I am the worst of sinners. Also note, this is more than just autobiography. Paul is, he, he is saying more than just he is sinful, although he's saying he is the worst of sinners. He's actually saying Jesus came to die for sinners. You know what we call this doctrine? We call this the doctrine of total depravity. It means that every single human being on the planet, from the nicest person to the meanest person, from the Mother Teresa's to the Taliban, are born wretched and sinful before God. And therefore, there is a problem. Why? Because then we're cut off from God and we're alienated from God. And because of that, unless we're reconciled to God, there will indeed be judgment. I recall several years ago being in Budapest and I met a young man there and had a good talk with him, got to share the gospel with him. We started emailing afterwards and he seemed to be interested in the things of God, seemed to be interested in spiritual things until I started pressing a bit on where he was spiritually. And as we talked about his sinfulness, he started to bristle, even on email. And he finally said these words to me on email. He said, I find it very difficult to accept the fact that I'm sinful. It doesn't, here's what his phrase was, it doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't make sense to me. And indeed, if you look at the Bible's message on a purely human level, it doesn't make sense. The doctrine of sin, the doctrine of original sin is offensive. It is abrasive. It is unpleasant. It's insulting. It's upsetting and it's harsh, but it's true. Passage after passage. Look at verse 15 again. Here is a trustworthy saying. Notice, what does the text say? that deserves full acceptance, Christ Jesus came into the world to do what? Set a good example? Be a moral philosopher? No. He came into the world for one reason. He was born to die. He came to save sinners. That is why he came. And again, theologians call this the doctrine of original sin. Now, here's what's interesting. As you look at Paul, he doesn't talk just about sin in the abstract here. He's not just waxing about evil structures. He's talking about owning it personally. Why do I, why do I emphasize that? Because of this. Until you and I own our sin personally, we can't be reconciled to God. I mean, that's the bottom line. Why do I emphasize that? Well, I emphasize it because sin and injustice are located only in the heart, ultimately. Right now, we live in a cultural narrative that says sin and evil are located primarily where? What's the current cultural narrative? That sin and injustice are located primarily where? In the power structures of our day. That's what the narrative is at the moment. Let me take just a minute here and pray one more time for Lisa as she exits. Let me pray again for her and Pastor Doug right now. Father, we thank you for your hand of providence and protection. We pray over Lisa right now. 
your precious daughter. We pray for comfort for her. We pray, Father, for your healing touch on her body. We pray for Josh right now and Caitlin, that you would keep them calm and that you would give them supernatural comfort right now and peace. Pray for Pastor Doug, that you would give him a peace right now, a comfort. Father, we thank you for the many, many years they've been part of this church family and how much they are beloved. And we realize at a moment like this how powerless we are. And so because we love them, because they're part of our family here, Father, we pray for your hand of divine protection over Lisa right now. Pray for those who will be looking at her at the uh, emergency room, that you would give them wisdom, that you would give them uncanny insight. And most of all, God, we pray for your healing touch. We love them. We lift them to you as a brother and sister in Christ. And we pray all of this in confidence that your will will be done. In Jesus' good name, amen. So back to what I'm saying. Paul is, was very interesting in verses 14 and 15. His, he's owning his sin here. He's not just talking about it in the abstract. He's owning it. And we go back to why is, he, why is that such a big deal? Because until we own our sin personally, we can't be made right with God. And I think it's especially important at this very moment in our cultural narrative to emphasize that because, to go back to what I was saying, sin and injustice at this moment, right now, we're being told, exist primarily in cultural structures, in the systems around us. This is what we call the woke gospel at the moment. It divides all of humanity into just two groups, not the saved and the unsaved, but oppressors and the oppressed. And hence, all the talk we're hearing right now, and it's not just in America, by the way, you hear this around the world, all the talk we're hearing right now about system or systemic injustice, injustice in the system, or system racism, or system discrimination, the Bible's response to the woke gospel is that, well, injustice certainly does infect the system. Why? Because systems are created by sinful human beings. Government is inhabited by sinful human beings. So there is justice. There is sin. There is evil in the cultural structures around us. Having said that, the difference at the core between the woke gospel and the biblical gospel is this. The woke gospel says the primary problem is the cultural systems around us. The Bible says the primary problem is the human heart. That's the difference. Rousseau and Marx, Rousseau and Marx, say society is corrupt. That is why human beings are corrupt. The Bible says human beings are corrupt. That's why society gets corrupted. There's a big difference. Here's how Jesus put it in Mark chapter 7. He settles it. I mean, you've got to decide. Rousseau and Marx on one side, Jesus on the other. He said this, from within the heart of man come evil thoughts. And he doesn't leave it generally. Fornication, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Wow, he goes for the juggler. Then he adds this. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a man. So last year, I read volume one of the Gulag Archipelago, 
from Alexander Solzhenitsyn. The great tragedy is a lot of people under 30 years old now don't even know the name Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Won the Nobel Prize for Literature back in the 70s. Gave a commencement address at Harvard in June of 1978 that absolutely rocked Harvard and the Western world. The president's wife at the time even blasted him for what he said because he got up as a dissident from Russia. Harvard expected him to blast communism, which he had done in his writings all his years. And instead, he gave a blistering critique of Western culture and its emptiness and its sterility and how it had abandoned God. By the end of the speech, he was getting booed. This is what he wrote in volume one of the Gulag Archipelago because he spent at least eight to ten years in the Soviet Gulag system. He said, the line separating good and evil passes not through the state, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. Solzhenitsyn understood what the Bible's message was. There's no clearer passage on this, by the way, than Romans 3. I want to turn there for just a minute. Some of you know this well. Some of you probably have memorized it. Others of you, this is new territory. There is, I don't think there's a concentrated passage that is more cogent and to the point about human depravity than Romans 3. And I'm only going to read a couple verses, 10, 11, and 12. Romans chapter 3, Paul's longest letter, same one who wrote 1 Timothy, chapter 3, verses 10 to 12, where Paul again zeroes in on our problem, your problem, my problem. Paul is here quoting the Hebrew Bible. There was no New Testament at the time, and he says this, as it is written, that's code for, I'm about ready to quote the sacred scriptures, there is no one righteous, not even one. Well, maybe Eileen Paul's grow. But other than that... <laughs> I see sweet Eileen sitting right in front of me. I feel bad just reading these verses, looking at her. Okay. As it is written, I'll just tell you what the text says. I can't. There's no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away and together have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Or to put it in the words of Isaiah the prophet, Chapter 59, verse 2, your sins have cut you off from God. That is the biblical message. I grew up in a church and in a denomination out in Southern California that did not preach that. They preached there are all other kinds of problems in the world in us, but not that I was cut off from God and that I was in trouble. It is shocking how many people can attend a church service around the world and never hear that. Never hear you're in trouble with God. You need to repent. You need to be reconciled. What's interesting is that secular psychology is even coming around. Evangelical Christians are often late to the party on just about everything. Steven Pinker, who's an atheist, brilliant writer, teaches at Harvard, psychology department. I've read a number of his books. In the blank slate, he takes on specifically Rousseau and John Locke and Karl Marx in that sense. And he says, there's no evidence we're born morally neutral or with a blank slate. Pinker, even though he's an atheist, Dr. Pinker goes on to say, when you look at the evidence of history, when you look at the evidence of what's going on around us right now, he says the evidence is overwhelming that human beings are born selfish, corrupt, wicked, and violent. Interesting message coming from a Jewish atheist who teaches at Harvard. 
That's the problem this morning. And the problem is that all of that leads to judgment. Romans 2.5 says this, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. That's the problem. And you got to have the bad news before what? Before you have the good news. Otherwise, the good news isn't good news because there's nothing to calibrate it against. That brings us to the good news. This is the answer, verses 16 and 17. We're back, First Timothy. And let me read what he says here. Here's the answer. Let's notice his words carefully. But for this very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, he says it again, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Do you notice the answer is given in verse 16, right at the end. I received mercy as an example for those who would do what? Do good works and be saved. Is that what he says? What is he, how do you get eternal life? He says it right there. For those who would believe in him, him as Christ, and receive eternal life. In other words, the answer to our sin, ladies and gentlemen, young people, kids, the answer to our sin problem from the moment of conception to being cut off from God and under his judgment is right there. This is the gospel. It is believing and trusting and surrendering to the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. You say, well, I don't have it all figured out. I'm not sure I understand. We're not called to figure it all out. There's no way a finite human being can figure out an infinite God. But the message is very clear. We are called to submit, to surrender, and to repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the good news here. And it comes, God's grace here is forgiveness comes to all, not everybody. It comes to those who do something turn from their sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Several years ago, Becky and I, uh, she asked me what I wanted to do for my birthday one year, and I, we were, lived in Michigan at the time. I, we always liked coming to Chicago for different things. I said, I'd love to go to Chicago for supper. And what do you know? She arranged it. So we head to the airport one afternoon, unbeknown to me, and we fly over here for supper. It was fun. On the way back to the uh, airport, we took a cab ride with a gentleman, and he started talking to him. We love to talk to cab drivers. And found out he was from Syria, which is a very war-torn country, and that he was a Muslim. And so I just began asking questions about his family, background. And at one point, I asked him, by the way, what does Islam teach? What does the Quran teach about going to heaven? And he was very well-versed in Islam. I'll give him that. He said, well, you got to be a good person, and you got to do good works, and you got to do this, and you got to do that. And then he went on, though, and he said, there are some sins that are unforgivable. No exceptions, and they will send you to hell. And as we began to talk a bit, it was very clear. He understood Islam, which is a law-based religion, and it's very different from the gospel, which is a grace-based religion. One of the great things of the Bible is how honest and raw and candid it is about wretchedly sinful people who find God and are forgiven. A despised tax collector named Matthew. A prison guard in the book of Acts. A woman who was a Samaritan who was, they were despised. Racism is nothing new anywhere on the earth. Samaritans were despised by Jews. 
Jews despise Samaritans. Samaritans despise Jews. A woman in John chapter 4, who not only was a Samaritan, she was an adulteress. And she found forgiveness. Or a disciple who denied Jesus three times. You realize Peter did the same sin Judas did, but Judas went to hell. Why? Because Judas didn't repent. Peter did. Now, let me switch channels for just a second and talk to some of you who are a little bit on the other end of the spectrum. In every church sit those who because of background or temperament or past teaching or training or all of the above, they don't struggle with the fact that they're sinful. In fact, their guilt and their sin weigh them down all the time. Their struggle is believing that there's a God who loves them and who is full of mercy and grace to any who will seek him. That's why I want to read verses 14 and 15 again. Notice the emphasis here, not just on grace, but amazing grace. There's a difference. Look at verses 14 and 15. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me a little bitty bit. Un poquito, right? No. The grace of our Lord is poured out on me what? Abundantly. Abundantly, along with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. It means pay attention, church. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. And we've seen Paul repeats that twice. Paul wrote 13 letters that we have. We, we know he wrote more than that. We have 13 that are inspired scripture in our New Testament. In every one of those 13 letters, without exception, somewhere in the opening paragraph or so, Paul opens with the words, grace and peace. Why? He wants us to never forget that the gospel is a gospel of grace. It is nothing about earning our salvation, nothing about trying to earn God's favor. It is about coming and saying, I don't deserve God's favor in knowing that he loves to pardon repentant, broken sinners like us. So if you're here this morning and you have an image only of God as an angry judge who will not forgive, go back and reread Paul here, the gospel of grace. That brings us lastly to the danger. There is a danger and Paul does not shy away from it. First, he unpacks the problem, our sin and our wretchedness, and that we're cut off from God. Then he gives us the answer. We have the bad news and the good news. This is the gospel pattern. The answer is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But then there's a danger, and we dare not neglect it. Verses 18 down to verse 20. Timothy, my son, I am giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by recalling them, you might fight the battle well. What battle? Well, it means the battle of faith. Holding on to faith and a good conscience. And then notice, please, would you look at your Bible? What does it say? Which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. What does that mean? That means people who professed to be Christians, who professed to be religious who professed to know God, but they weren't really born again. And then he names two. Among them, Paul never was hesitant to name names. We get a little squeamish about it. 
But he mentions Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. So what is the danger? Problem? We're cut off from God from the moment of conception. We're born sinful. We sin by nature. We sin by choice. And because of it, we're under God's judgment. The answer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he did on the cross then will apply to us. But what is the great danger? The great danger, young people, especially look at this. The great danger is drifting. It's false conversion, a false salvation experience, a counterfeit salvation experience. And there's no greater example of this than Judas. Now, Paul mentions two others here, but Judas. I want you to look at one other section, and this actually will lead us into the Lord's table, and that is 2 Corinthians 13, where Paul calls us to do something that modern evangelicals often blanch at and don't like to do. We are too quick in Western culture to want to run and reassure people who shouldn't be reassured necessarily that because they prayed a prayer, they're automatically saved. They might be, but Paul, in his writings, tells us, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, notice his wording. And this is a verse we often read at a time of the Lord's table. He writes, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. That means make sure that your salvation experience is legit. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless, of course, you fail the tests? Unless, of course, you fail the tests. I had the privilege to do doctoral work in the history of preaching. And I love to read preaching, I love to study preaching, I love to study preachers. One of the things I have noticed in reading, I don't know how many sermons from over the centuries, is when you go back to an era like the Puritans in England several hundred years ago, one of the things they emphasize that we don't today a lot is the danger of a false conversion. It's almost avoided today, and yet they talked about it a lot. I'm going to give you one example before we go to communion, because this sets up the Lord's table here. It was a book written by Matthew Mead. It was actually a series of sermons. Matthew Mead was a rock star in ancient London. I didn't have rock bands back then, but he was a preacher back then. And he pastored actually two different congregations that were very well attended by hundreds and hundreds who would come out on the Lord's day to hear him preach. He preached a series one time called The Almost Christian Discovered. Kind of a weird title now in English. But I have the book. I've read it. it what it is, is a series of sermons he preached on the danger of false... He didn't just mention it occasionally. He did a whole series on it. The danger of false conversion. The phrase almost Christian is code for what we would call today an unconverted person, a, a counterfeit Christian. And he said that some people don't realize that just because they pray, just because they go to church, just because they're baptized, just because they enjoy listening to preaching, that they are automatically saved. And then he drills down on Jesus' words in Matthew 7, which say this, many will call me Lord on judgment day. And he said, but Jesus will look at him and say, I never knew you. I never knew you. Why? Because they never trusted wholeheartedly. They were never all in. They never surrendered to Jesus Christ on a personal level as Savior and Lord. That is the summons today. Do you know Christ? And if you do, are you evangelizing your children? 
Our children are not born saved. Our children are born just like we're born, under the judgment and wrath of God. They need to come to Christ. Becky and I right now have 10 grandkids. We don't know if any of them are saved at the moment. There was seven down, seven ages, seven on down. The seven-year-old might be. His parents are not rushing to give him assurance or walking with him, talking with him, looking for fruit. But beyond that, we know the other nine are not yet. They're not old enough or they are just getting to that age. And each set of parents knows they need to actively evangelize and present the gospel and urge their children to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you doing that? Don't just depend on Awana. Awana does it really well. Don't just depend on our children's program. That does it really well too. Or on our youth ministry called Nexus. They do it well too. But it is not primarily Pastor Ron's job. It is not primarily Heather Sukup's job. It's not primarily our Awana leader's jobs. It is primarily a mom and dad's job. Or if you're a single parent, a mom or a dad's job. Or if you have children that are grown and unsaved and you have grandchildren... Then as grandparents, it's our job to pray and to do what we can in appropriate ways to evangelize our grandchildren. 